Schlock Audio Tales. Brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their brand new Dino Sound Slippers. Slippers make a roaring sound every three steps. Made with green scaly fabric, soft plush uppers, foam footbeds, non-slip grips on soles, and three white claws on each foot. One size fits most up to women's ten and a half, men's nine. Footbed measures ten and a half. Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast that reads a story, either a chapter of a novel or a whole short story. Join us in our exploration of old ghost stories, supernatural fiction, horror tales, folk tales, fantasy, gothic horror, weird fiction, and cosmic horror. And don't forget to join us for our monthly show about the Cthulhu Mythos. Look for our podcast near the old wishing well in the Blasted Heath, wherever you find your podcasts. We suggest Podbean or Apple Podcasts. Find us on the web at pgttcm.com and at Black Clock Audio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and Black Clock Audio Tales on YouTube. Welcome to Black Clock Audio Tales. Check out our new website over at www.pgttcm.com. Edited by Daniel Spitzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. The Chamber, Oppressive Gloom, Despair. Welcome to Part 1, Folklore of Great Britain. Join us at the end of the month when we talk about the Great Old Ones. Of Folklore and Legends, English. A Dissertation on Fairies by Joseph Ritson, Esquire. Part 1. The earliest mention of fairies is made by Homer, if, that is, his English translator has, in this instance, done him justice. Where round the bed whence Achilles springs, the watery fairies dance in mazy rings. Iliad, B, 24, 617. These nymphs he supposes to frequent or reside in woods, hills, the sea, fountains, grottoes, etc., once they are peculiarly called naiads, dryads, and nereids. What sounds are those that gather from the shores, the voice of nymphs that haunt the sylvan bowers, the fair-haired dryads of the shady wood, or azure daughters of the silver flood? End quote. Odysseus B. 6. 122. The original word, indeed, is nymphs, which, it must be confessed, furnishes an accurate idea of the fays, fays or fates, of the ancient French and Italian romances, wherein they are represented as females of inexpressible beauty, elegance, and every kind of personal accomplishment, united with magic or supernatural power, such, for instance, as the Calypso of Homer, or the Elsina of Ariosto. Agreeably to this idea, it is that Shakespeare makes Antony say in allusion to Cleopatra, quote, to this great fairy I'll commend thy acts, end quote, meaning this grand assemblage of power and beauty. Such also is the character of the ancient nymphs, spoken of by the Roman poets, as Virgil, for instance, quote, Fortunatus et il, Deus qui novit agrestis, panaque sylvanumque senum, 
nymphasque sorores. End quote. Georgia, 2, 493. They likewise occur in other passages as well as in Horace. Quote, Gelidum nimus nymphorumque levis cum satiris cori. End quote. Camina, 1, 0, 1, 5, 30. And, still more frequently, in Ovid. Not far from Rome, as we are told by Courier, was a place formerly called Ad Nymphus, and at this day Santa Nympha, which without doubt, he adds, in the language of our ancestors, would have been called the place of Thais. Recherche des Antiquités de Vienne, Lyon. 1659. The word fei, or fei, among the French, is derived, according to Du Cange, from the barbarous Latin fadus or fada, in Italian fata. Gervais of Tilbury, in his Ocia Imperialia, D3C88, speaks of, quote, some of this kind of larvae, which they named Fade, we have heard to be lovers, end quote. And in his relation of a nocturnal contest between two knights, C. 94, he exclaims, quote, What shall I say? I know not if it were a true horse or if it were a fairy, Fadus, as men assert, end quote. From the Roman de Partene or de Lesignan, Manuscript, Du Conge cites, Quote, Le Chasteau fut fait une fée, si comme il est partout portrait. Hence, he says, fairy for specters. Quote, Plusieurs parlant de Grenier, de Lou de Lagne et de Renard, de Ferry et de Songer. De fantôme et de mensonge. End quote. The same Gervas explains the Latin fata, fay, French, a divining woman, an enchantress, or a witch. D3C88. Master Wace, in his Histoire des Deux de Normandie, confounded by many with the Roman de Rue, Describing the fountain of Barenton in Britannia, says, quote, En la forest at environ me je ne sais par quelle raison la scutlen les fait vieillir, sur les bretons no dien vieillir, etc. End quote. In the forest and around, I want not by what reason found, there may a man the fairies spy if Britons do not tell a lie. But it may be difficult to conceive an accurate idea from the mere name of the popular French fay or fairies of the 12th century. In Vienne, in Dauphiny, is La Puy des Fées, or Fairy Well, 
These fays, it must be confessed, have a strong resemblance to the nymphs of the ancients, who inhabited caves and fountains. Upon a little rock, which overlooks the Rhone, are three round holes which nature alone has formed, although it seem, at first sight, that art has labored after her. They say that they were formerly frequented by fays, that they were full of water when it rained, and that they there frequently took the pleasure of the bath, than which they had not one more charming. Corrier, Recherche, etc. Pomponius Mela, an eminent geographer, and in point of time far interior to Pliny, relates that beyond a mountain in Ethiopia, called by the Greeks the high mountain, burning, he says with perpetual fire, is a hill spread over a long tract by extended shores, whence they rather go see wide plains than to behold the habitations of pans and satyrs. Hence, he adds, this opinion received faith that, whereas in these parts is nothing of culture, no seats of inhabitants, no footsteps, a waste solitude in the day, and a mere waste silence, frequent fires shine by night, and camps, as it were, are seen widely spread, cymbals and tympans sound, and sounding pipes are heard more than human. B3C9 These invisible essences, however, are both anonymous and nondescript. The Penates of the Romans, according to honest Reginald Scott, were, quote, the domestical gods, or rather divils, that were said to make men live quietly within doors. But some think that lares are, such as treble private houses, larvae are said to be spirits that walk only by night. Vincili Terry are such as was Robin Goodfellow, that would supply the office of servants, especially of maids, as to make a fire in the morning, sweep the house, grind mustard and malt, draw water, etc. These also rumble in houses, draw latches, go up and down stairs, etc. Discovery of Witchcraft, London, 1584, page 521. A more modern writer says, quote, The Latins have called the fairies lares and larvae, frequenting, as they say, houses delighting in neatness, pinching the slut, and rewarding the good housewife with money in her shoe. Passant, Treatise of Witches, 1673, page 53. This, however, is nothing but the character of an English fairy applied to the name of a Roman lar or larva. It might have been wished, too, that Scott, a man unquestionably of great learning, had referred by name and work and book and chapter to those ancient authors from whom he derived his information upon the Roman penates, etc. What idea our Saxon ancestors had of the fairy which they called Elf, a word explained by lie as equivalent to Lamia, Larva, Incubus, Ephialtes, we are utterly at a loss to conceive. The nymphs, the satyrs, and the fauns are frequently noticed by the old traditional historians of the North, 
particularly Saxo Grammaticus, who has a curious story of three nymphs of the forest and Hother, king of Sweden and Denmark, being apparently the originals of the weird or wizard, sisters of Macbeth. B. 3, page 39. Others are preserved by Olanus Magnus, who says they had so deeply impressed into the earth that the place they have been used to, having been apparently eaten up in a circular form with flagrant heat, never brings forth fresh grass from the dry turf. This nocturnal sport of monsters, he adds, the natives call the Dance of the Elves, B3C10. Quote, in John Malasius, any man may read of devils in Sarmatia, honored, called Katri or Kibaldi, such as we pugs and hobgoblins call. Their dwellings be in corners of old houses least frequented, or beneath stacks of wood, and these convented make fearful noise in the buttries and in dairies. Robin Goodfellows, some, some call them fairies. In solitary rooms these uproars keep, and beat at doors to wake men from their sleep, seeming to force locks, be they ne'er so strong, and keeping Christmas gambles all night long. Pots, glasses, trenchers, dishes, pans, and kettles. They will make dance about the shelves and settles, as if about the kitchen toast and cast. Yet in the morning, nothing found misplaced. End quote. Haywood's Hierarchy of Angels, 1635, F.O., page 574. Milton, a prodigious reader of romance, has likewise given an apt idea of the ancient phase. Quote, Fairer than famed of old or fabled since, of fairy damsels met in forest wide, by knights of Logris and of Lyons, Lancelot or Peleus or Pellinore. End quote. These ladies, in fact, are by no means unfrequent in those fabulous, it must be confessed, but at the same time, ingenious and entertaining histories. As, for instance, Melusine or Melusine, the heroine of a very ancient romance in French verse, and who was occasionally turned into a serpent. Morgan Le Fay, reputed half-sister of King Arthur and the Lady of the Lake, so frequently noticed in Sir Thomas Mallory's old history of that monarch. Legrand is of opinion that what is called fairy comes to us from the Orientals, and that it is their genies which have produced our fairies, a species of nymphs of an order superior to those women magicians, to whom they nevertheless gave the same name. In Asia, he says, where the women imprisoned in the harems proved still beyond the general servitude a particular slavery, the romancers have imagined the Paris, who flying in the air come to soften their captivity and render them happy. Fablio, 12 MO, 1, 112. Whether this be so or not, it is certain that we call the aurora borealis, or active clouds in the night, peri-dancers. 
After all, Sir William Ousley finds it impossible to give an accurate idea of what the Persian poets designed by a parry, this aerial being not resembling our fairies. The strongest resemblance he can find is in the description of Milton in Comus, the sublime idea which Milton entertained of a fairy vision corresponds rather with that which the Persian poets have conceived of the peris. Quote, Their port was more than human as they stood. I took it for a fairy vision of some gay creatures of the element, that in the colors of the rainbow live and play in the plighted clouds. End quote. Disraeli's Romances Page 13. It is by no means credible, however, that Milton had any knowledge of the Oriental Peris, though his enthusiastic or poetical imagination might have easily peopled the air with spirits. There are two sorts of fays, according to M. Legrand. The one, a species of nymphs or divinities. The other, more properly called sorceresses, or women instructed in magic. From time immemorial, in the Abbey of Poissy, founded by St. Louis, they said every year a mass to preserve the nuns from the power of the fays. When the process of the damsel of Orléans was made, the doctors demanded for the first question, quote, if she had any knowledge of those who went to the Sabbath with the fays, or if she had not assisted at the assemblies held at the fountain of the fays near Domprin, around which dance malignant spirits." End quote. The Journal of Paris, under Charles VI and Charles VII, pretends that she confessed that, at the age of twenty-seven years, she frequently went, in spite of her father and mother, to a fair fountain in the county of Lorraine, which she named the Good Fountain to the Face Our Lord. 1b, page 75. Gervas of Tilbury, in his chapter of Fawns and Satyrs, says, quote, There are likewise others, whom the vulgar call follets, who inhabit the houses of the simple rustics, and can be driven away neither by holy water nor exorcisms. And because they are not seen, they afflict those who are entering with stones, billets, and domestic furniture, whose words for certain are heard in the human manner, and their forms do not appear. Otia Imperialia, D. 1. C. 18. He is speaking of England. This follet seems to resemble Puck or Robin Goodfellow, whose pranks were recorded in an old song and who was sometimes useful and sometimes mischievous whether or not he was the fairy spirit of whom Milton, quote, tells how the drudging goblin sweat to earn his cream bowl duly set, when in one night, ere glimpse of morn, his shadowy flail hath threshed the corn that ten-day laborers could not end, then lies him down the lover fend, and stretched out all the chimney's length, basks at the fire his hairy strength, and crop full out of doors he flings, ere the first cock his matin rings. End quote. L'Allegro. Is a matter of some difficulty, 
Perhaps the giant son of the witch that had the devil's mark about her, of whom there is a pretty tale, that was called Lobley by the fire, was a very different personage from Robin Goodfellow, whom, however, he in some respects appears to resemble. A near female relation of the compiler who was born and brought up in a small village in the bishopric of Durham, related to him many years ago several circumstances which confirmed the exactitude of Milton's description. She particularly told of his threshing the corn, churning the butter, drinking the milk, etc., and when all was done, quote, lying before the fire like a great rough Bergen bear, end quote. In another chapter, Gervais says, quote, as among men, nature produces certain wonderful things, so spirits in airy bodies, who assume by divine permission the mocks they make. For behold, England has certain demons, demons I call them, though I know not, but I should say secret forms of unknown generation, whom the French call Neptunes, the English Portunes. With these it is natural that they take advantage of the simplicity of fortunate peasants, and when by reason of their domestic labors they perform their nocturnal vigils, of a sudden, the doors being shut, they warm themselves at the fire, and eat little frogs cast out of their bosoms, and put upon the burning coals. With an antiquated countenance, a wrinkled face, diminutive in stature, not having in length half a thumb, they are clothed with rags patched together, and if anything should be to be carried on in the house, or any kind of laborious work to be done, they join themselves to the work and expedite it with more than human facility. It is natural to these that they may be obsequious and may not be hurtful, but one little mode, as it were, they have of hurting, for when among the ambiguous shades of night the English occasionally ride alone, the portoon, sometimes unseen, couples himself to the rider, and when he has accompanied him, going on a very long time, at length, the bridle being seized, he leads him up to the hand in the mud, in which while, infixed, he wallows, the portoon, departing, sets up a laugh, and so in this kind of way derides human simplicity. End quote. Otia Imperialia D. 3. C. 61. This spirit seems to have some resemblance to the pick tree brag, a mischievous Guest that used to haunt that part of the country in the shape of different animals, particularly of a little Galloway, in which shape a farmer, still or lately living thereabout, reported that it had come to him one night as he was going home, that he got upon it and rode very quietly till it came to a great pond to which it ran and threw him in and went laughing away. He further says there is in England a certain species of demons, which in their language they call Grant, like a one-year-old fool with straight legs and sparkling eyes. This kind of demon very often appears in the streets, in the very heat of the day or about sunset, and as often as it makes its appearance, portends that there is about to be a fire in that city or town. When, therefore, in the following day or night the danger is urgent, in the streets, running to and fro, 
it provokes the dogs to bark and while it pretends flight invites them following to pursue in the vain hope of overtaking it this kind of illusion provokes caution to the watchmen who have the custody of fire and so the officious race of demons while they terrify the beholders are wont to secure the ignorant by their arrival Gervas D 3C 62 Gower in his tale of Narcissus professedly from Ovid says quote, as he cast his look into the well he saw the like of his visage and when there were an image of such a nymph as though was fae End quote. Confessio Amantis F.O. 20b In his legend of Constance is this passage quote, Thy wife which is of fairy of such a child delivered is fro kind which stant all amiss End quote. Ibid F.O. 32b In another part of his book is a story how the king of Armenus' daughter met on a time a company of the fairy, end quote. These ladies ride aside on fair, white, ambulant horses, clad very magnificently, but all alike, in white and blue, and wore crowns on their heads. But they are not called fays in the poem, nor does the word fay or fairy once occur therein. The fairies or elves of the British Isles are peculiar to this part of the world, and are not, so far as literary information or oral tradition enables us to judge, to be found in any other country. For this fact, the authority of Father Chaucer will be decisive, till we acquire evidence of equal antiquity in favor of other nations. Quote, in old days of the King Arthur, of which the Bretons specken writ honor, all was this land fulfilled of fairy, the elf queen, with higher jolly company, danced full oft in many a grand med. This was the old opinion as I read. I speak of many hundred years ago, but now can no man see non elves mo, for now the great charity and prayers of limitures and other holy frères that search in every land and every stream as thick as motes in the sun abeam, blissing Hollis, Chambres, Kitchenes, and Burras, cities and Burgas, castles high and Torres, Thropes and Burnus, Shepens and Dairies, this maketh that there been no fairies. End quote. Wife of Bath's Tale. The fairy may be defined as a species of being partly material, partly spiritual, with a power to change its appearance, and be to mankind visible or invisible according to its pleasure. In the old song printed by Peck, Robin Goodfellow, a well-known fairy, professes that he had played his pranks from the time of Merlin who was the contemporary of Arthur. 
Chaucer uses the word fairy as well as for the individual, as for the country or system, or what we should now call fairyland, or fairyism. He knew nothing, it would seem, of Oberon, Titania, or Mab, but speaks of, quote, Pluto that is the king of fairy, and many a lady in his company, following his wife, the queen Proserpina, etc. End quote. The Merchant's Tale, 1, 10101. From this passage of Chaucer, Mr. Turwitt, quote, cannot help thinking that his Pluto and Proserpina were the true progenitors of Oberon and Titania, end quote. In the process of the Wife of Bath's Tale, it happed the knight, quote, in his way to ride in all his care under a forest side, whereas he saw upon a dance go of ladies four and twenty, and yet mo, toward this like dance he draw full yearn, in hope that he some wisdom should learn. But certainly, ere he came fully there, he vanished was this dance he wist not where. End quote. These ladies appear to have been fairies, though nothing is insinuated of their size. Milton seems to have been upon the prowl here for his forest side. In a midsummer's night dream, a fairy addresses Bottom the Weaver, Hail, mortal, hail, which sufficiently shows she was not so herself. Puck, or Robin Goodfellow in the same play, calls Oberon King of Shadows, and in the old song just mentioned, the King of Ghosts and Shadows. And this mighty monarch asserts of himself and his subjects, but we are spirits of another sort. The fairies, as we already see, were male and female. Their government was monarchical, and Oberon, the king of fairyland, must have been a sovereign of very extensive territory. The name of his queen was Titania. Both are mentioned by Shakespeare, being personages of no little importance in the above play, where they, in an ill humor, thus encounter Oberon. Ill met by moonlight, proud Titania. What jealous Oberon, fairy, skip hence, I have forsworn his bed and company. That the name Oberon was not the invention of our great dramatist is sufficiently proved. The allegorical Spencer gives it to King Henry VIII. Robert Greene was the author of a play entitled The Scottish History of James IV, intermixed with a pleasant comedy presented by Oberon, King of the Fairies. He is, likewise, a character in the old French romances of Juan de Bordeaux and Ogier Le Danois, and there even seems to be one upon his own exploits, Roman Oberon. What authority, however, Shakespeare had for the name Titania, it does not appear, nor is she so called by any other writer. He himself, at the same time, as well as many others, gives to the Queen of Fairies the name of Mab, though no one except Grayton mentions her as the wife of Oberon. Oh, then, I see, Queen Mab hath been with you. She is the fairy's midwife, and she comes in shape no bigger than an agate stone on the forefinger of an alderman, drawn with a team of little atomies athwart men's noses as they lie asleep. 
Her wagon spokes made of long spinner's legs, the cover of the wings of grasshoppers, the traces of the smallest spider's web, the collars of the moonshine's watery beams, her whip of cricket's bone, the lash of film. Her wagoner, a small gray-coated gnat, not half so big as a round little worm pricked from the lazy finger of a maid. Her chariot is an empty hazelnut, made by the joiner squirrel or old grub, time out of mind the fairies' coachmakers. And in this state she gallops night by night through lovers' brains, and then they dream of love. This is that very man that plates the manes of horses in the night and bakes the elf locks in foul sluttish hair which once untangled much misfortune bodes. Romeo and Juliet Ben Jonson, in his entertainment of the Queen and Prince at Althrope in 1603, describes to come tripping up the lawn a bevy of fairies attending on Mab their queen, who, falling into an artificial ring that was there cut in the path, began to dance around. Works 5-201 In the same mask, the queen is thus characterized by a satyr. This is Mab, the mistress fairy, that doth nightly rob the dairy, and can hurt or help the churning as she please without discerning she that pinches country wenches if they rub not clean their benches and with sharper nails remembers when they rake not up their embers but if so they chance to feast her in a shoe she drops a tester this is she that empties cradles takes out children puts in ladles trains forth midwives in their slumber with a sieve the holes to number and thus leads them from her burrows, home through ponds and water furrows. She can start our Franklin's daughters in their sleep with shrieks and laughters, and on sweet St. Agnes' night, feed them with a promised sight, some of husbands, some of lovers, which an empty dream discovers. Folklore and Legends, English, by Charles John Tibbets. Introductory Note The old English folklore tales are fast dying out. The simplicity of character, necessary for the retaining of old memories and beliefs, is being lost, more rapidly in England, perhaps, than in any other part of the world. Our folk are giving up the old myths for new ones. Before remorseless progress and the struggle for existence, the poetry of life is being quickly blotted out. In editing this volume, I have endeavoured to select some of the best specimens of our folklore. With regard to the nursery tales, I have taken pains to give them as they are in the earliest editions I could find. I must say, however, that while I have taken every care to alter only as much as was absolutely necessary in these tales, some excision and slight alteration has at times been required. A farmstead in situated near the borders of Northumberland, a few miles from Holtzar, was once occupied by a family of the name W.K.N. 
In front of the dwelling house and at about 60 yards distance lay a stone of vast size, as ancient, for so tradition amplifies the date, as the flood. On this stone at the dead hour of the night might be discerned a female figure wrapped in grey cloak with one of those low-crowned black bonnets, so familiar to a grandmother's, upon her head. She was incessantly knock, knock, knocking, in a fruitless endeavour to split the impenetrable rock. Dahlia's night came round, she occupied her lonely station in the same low-crouching attitude and pursued the dreary obligations of her destiny, till the grey streaks of the dawn gave up to mission to depart. From this, the only perceptible action in which she engaged, she obtained the name of Nelly, the Noka. So perfectly had the inmates of the farmhouse in the lapse of time, which will reconcile sights and events the most disagreeable and alarming, become accustomed to Nelly undeviating nightly din, that the work went forward, unimpeded and undisturbed by any apprehension occurring from her shadowy presence. Did the servant man make his punctual resort to the neighboring cottages, he took the liberty of scrutinizing Nelly's antiquated carp that varied not with the vicissitudes of seasons, or he pried sympathetically into the progress of her monotonous occupation, and through her pale, ghastly, contracted features gave a momentarily pang of terror, it was rapidly affected in the vortex of good fellowship into which he was speedily drawn. Did the loon venture an appointment with his mistress at the rustic style of her stockgarth, Nelly's unwearied hammer, instead of proving a barrier, only served by imparting a grateful sense of mutual danger to render more intense the raptures of the hour of meeting. So apathetic were the feelings cherished towards her, and so little jealousy existed of her power to injure, that the relator of the circumstances states that on several occasions she has passed Nelly at her laborious toil without evincing the slightest perturbation beyond a hurried step, as he stole a glance in the explicable and mysterious form. An event in the course of years disclosed the secrets that marvelous stone shrouded and drove poor Nelly forever from the scene so inscrutably linked with her fate. Two of the sons of the farmer were rapidly approaching maturity, when one of them, more reflecting and shrewd than his compeers, suggested the idea of relieving Nelly from her toilsome avocation and of taking possession of the alluring legacy to which she was evidently and urgently summoning. He proposed, conjointly with his father and brother, to blast the stone as the most expeditious mode of gaining access to her arcana, and this in the open daylight in order that any tutelary protection she might be disposed to extend to her favorite haunt might, as he was a thing of darkness in the night, be effectually countervailed. Nor were their hopes frustrated, for upon clearing away the earth and fragments that resulted from the explosion, there was revealed to their elated and admiring gaze a precious booty of closely packed urns, copiously enriched with gold. 
anxious that no imitation of their good fortune should transpire, they had taken the precaution to dispatch the female servant on a needless errand, and ere her return, the whole treasure was efficiently and completely secured. So completely did they succeed in keeping their own counsel, and so successfully did their reputation keep pace with the cautious production of their undivulged treasures, that for many years afterwards they were never suspected of gaining any advantage from poor Nellie's knocking. Their improved appearance and the somewhat imposing figure that they made in their little district, being solely attributed to their superior judgment and to the good management of their lucky farm. Recording by Daphne Ma. Brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their brand new Dino Sound Slippers. Slippers make a roaring sound every three steps. Made with green scaly fabric, soft plush uppers, foam footbeds, non-slip grips on soles, and three white claws on each foot. One size fits most up to women's ten and a half, men's nine. Footbed measures ten and a half. Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast that reads you a story, either a chapter of a novel or a whole short story. Join us in our exploration of old ghost stories, supernatural fiction, horror tales, folk tales, fantasy, gothic horror, weird fiction, and cosmic horror. And don't forget to join us for our monthly show about the Cthulhu Mythos. Look for our podcast near the old wishing well in the Blasted Heath, wherever you find your podcasts. We suggest Podbean or Apple Podcasts. Find us on the web at pgttcm.com and at Black. Clock Audio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and Black Clock Audio Tales on YouTube. Welcome to Black Clock Audio Tales. Check out our new website over at www.pgttcm.com. Edited by Daniel Spitzer, music by Kevin McLeod. The Chamber, Oppressive Gloom, Despair. Welcome to Part 1, Folklore of Great Britain. Join us at the end of the month when we talk about the Great Old Ones.